I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Team Human is a commercial free act of love. You can support the team by becoming a subscriber at teamhuman.fm. Gain access to our bonus content from the archive, such as conversations with Timothy Leary, Bruce Sterling, Harvey Picar, Dana Boy, Joanna Harcourt Smith, and many, many others. You'll also gain access to the Team Human Discord channel and special events in the Team Human High Fidelity Spatial Audio Lounge, including live salons with some of our guests and friends. So please join listeners like Kyle O'Malley, Hal Phillips, Paula Whaley, Madeline H.D. Brown, and John Campanelli, and get all those benefits plus invitations to our live shows once we're back in the real world. Thanks. You're on Team Human, a safe harbor from the storm of disinformation, a headspace and a heart space where we celebrate the uniquely human ability to make sense of the chaos, forge understandings across sacrosanct boundaries, and envision a way through the despair to renaissance. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, the filmmakers behind the new movie about Pepe the Frog, Feels Good Man, Arthur Jones, and Giorgio Angelini. Hardcore happiness is kind of this position to be aware that you don't have to, you don't have to take the bait, in a sense. You don't have to play the role of the troll and play by the rules of the internet in real life, because real life is real life, real life is not the internet. Arthur and Giorgio are going to show us how a great meme can go bad and how to take it back again. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and frogs. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I've recorded this monologue a number of times, uh, partly because I'm trying to get it right, but partly because I'm trying to get it right without calling out anyone in particular. You know, I don't want to be mean. I don't want to make anyone 
in particular feel bad or outed or exposed. But what's been happening in my life is that, you know, a number of my friends, my other other journalist kind of public intellectual friends, I'm seeing them increasingly use really unfair tactics and unfair rhetoric in their work. You know, just a week or so ago, a friend of mine did a tweet where he put up two pictures, one that was like how we do things here and the other is how they do things over in the UK. And it wasn't really true. It just wasn't true. You know, it had to do with COVID and all and the the preparations they do there, which are lighter in theory than the ones we do here. And it's just not true. You know, the the UK, they've done full lockdowns, you know, more draconian stuff than than we've had to do in America. And, And you could paint the picture either way. If you want to be in the UK, you could say, oh, look at how liberal they are in America versus what we did here. You could do the same thing here and say, oh, look at how, you know, uh, uh, liberal they are over there and, and how draconian we are over here. So the thing wasn't true. It just wasn't real. And I confronted him about it. And he said, well, you know, I did it because, uh, uh, you know, it's just Twitter and I'm making a point and the pictures are real, right? They're real. You're just, you know, kind of cherry picked. And but but why do that? And he said, well, because you got to get people angry. You know, this is more propaganda. This is not my real journalism. It's not like I'm writing a piece for The New York Times. This is this is this is Twitter. And I need to get people mad about this issue. Really? You need to get people mad. People people on Twitter, oh God, you know the real problem with Twitter? People aren't mad enough, right? There's not enough rage on there. So let me put up some stuff that's not quite accurate to get people angry. And then they can keep retweeting it and spreading it around, which they did, right? As if this is great evidence of how bad things are and why we have to be more angry. You know, and and. He compared it to Larry Kramer and Act Up, you know, and I understand Larry Kramer and Act Up. That was about getting people uh, to have an immune response to the AIDS crisis, to get people mad. But he used facts to get people mad and and demonstrations and performance art. They did a a die-in at St. Patrick's Cathedral where men lie down in the aisles to demonstrate these are the people that are going to be dead pretty soon if we don't start doing something about this, Cardinal. I mean, it was a very different fact-based agitprop that was going on then versus this fake news thing. Because you know what happens? And I've got two or three friends this is happening to now. They put up a few kind of fake news things on Twitter, get a bunch of reinforcement from other angry people who feel very, very strongly about the issue and that it's, you know, it's okay to put up some fake news. The ends justify the means as long as you get people mad about the right thing. And then, you know, then they can't quite get in those same publications anymore. The editors see those things and they don't want people who are putting out false information to be, you can't trust their credibility as journalists anymore. So then what happens? They say, oh, look, I'm being censored. I'm being censored for speaking the truth. And then they go to, uh, uh, you know, Substack and get their own little crowd, their own little cult following to be angry with them at their, at their thing. And what they've actually done is they've undermined their own argument, their own important argument by resorting to fake news and then being forced out into the into the boondocks of their own private filter bubble of fans who reinforce this thing. And then you really do lose them. They get 
hard. They get they get stiff in this awful way where they don't want to look toward reconciliation or engagement, where there's there's some truth to everybody's perspective. Instead, they get to, no, no, my side is it, and this is it, and the other side is bad. And, you know, my other friend, one of, one of them who ended up becoming a, a QAnon person for a while, now what he's saying about the whole COVID thing is, is you know, we got to remember to really point fingers at anybody who had the wrong story, anybody who was wrong, you know, to, to, to get them back, you know, maintain your rage. Even when things get better, we've got to make sure we keep calling out the people who may have been wrong. It's like, what? Is that really where, is that where we want to go? Is that the place we want to go? Because in reality, the fact is none of us really knows what's going on. You know, we're we're all uh, groping in the dark. And then for the people who, who are supposedly the experts in these, in these areas to then go there, you know, and there's example after example. I've got a friend who found out about a, uh, there was a hospital in Massachusetts that was looking at the research that showed that black people who are in pain end up not getting the same care as white people who are in pain in emergency rooms and in hospitals. And uh, there was a cardiac unit in particular that was sending black people in home with the same symptoms as white people. And black people were ending up getting more heart attacks and more uh, fatal events after being sent home. So they told the doctors, look, you know, when a black person is talking to you, try to really pay attention to the possibility that something's wrong because we're not paying as good attention to when they speak to us as when white people speak to us. So what does this journalist do? They put up a piece saying uh, uh, Massachusetts hospital orders doctors to discriminate against white people. It's like, that's not what was going on, right? But they used it to to grind their little axe, to start to play with their issue about, you know, social justice warriorship or PC issues and all that. And I get it. I'm mad about things, too. I get upset about stuff, too. You know, and whatever issue it is, you know, when you see the the fake news about Israel, I mean, God, you know, people still don't really know what what happened there. And that's another story for another day. But just people want to be angry. Let's be angry at this side. Let's be angry at that side. You know, not looking at, at the context or the way leadership really does the same thing. You know, what what we're looking at in the Middle East, to make a long story short, is leadership trying to maintain hostility so they can stay in power. What really happened in, in Israel just a few weeks ago was an opposition government had organized itself with both Arabs and Jews, with both Islam, you know, an Islamic party and a Zionist party. They were all together, enough, cooperating enough to forge a new government. And the person who's in charge there, Netanyahu, said, oh my God, this is trouble. So what did he do? He turns off the sound in the last day of Ramadan. He turns off the sound at the mosque, which everybody comes out, what the heck is going on? We get violence, we get bombs, we, and the coalition government opposition to him breaks down. So again, fake news. Let's keep people angry. And no, this is not working. This is not working at all. And what, what it teaches me, I mean, obviously what it teaches me is, you know, Twitter is just not a place to try to do any of this. All it does is reward anger. All it does is reward polarity and brings down some of the best minds of my generation get brought down by the biases of that space. 
But what it also teaches me is play fair. You know, I'm working on a book now, and there's some real assholes I'm writing about in this book. But boy, I'm going to be fair. I'm not going to use stuff against them. You know, uh, uh, just because they flew in the Lolita Express doesn't mean... You know, <laughs> I have to call them out on it, right? That's there's there's some underhanded stuff that that boy. If I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it really carefully. I'm gonna do it um, and admit that anybody can be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But why are these guys ending up here rather than there? Hold back, you know. Just hold back from from playing that underhanded card because once you do, once you go down that road. Boy, nothing, nothing good happens. Play fair. These things matter. Once you cross over into the land of make-believe facts, however earnest you believe your intention is, it undermines not only your argument, but the whole social fabric. It undermines our entire collective quest as human beings to figure out what the heck is really going on here. Like most Americans, I only came to know the comics character Pepe the Frog after he'd been co-opted by the alt-right as an internet meme and symbol of, well, menace. But he was actually adapted from a sweet little slacker prankster gamer dude in a lovely indie comic by Matt Fury called Boys Club. Gosh, even that name seems inappropriate by today's standards. But it's a great little book. And Arthur and Giorgio have just released a film about the origins and mutation of Pepe, Feels Good Man, that you can watch for like three bucks through anything such as YouTube and Amazon. And I got to sit down with them to talk about memes and moreover, the co-option of Slack. These are the good guys. And I hope their sweetness shines through this conversation. How did you two find each other as filmmakers and and decide to work on the Feels Good Man project together? Well, Giorgio found me initially through some mutual friends. He was he was making a film called Own: The Tale of Two Americas. That's a documentary about redlining and post-war housing policy, and he needed some animation for the for that film. So I did some animation on that film, and then we started to have these conversations about art and filmmaking and politics. Mm. And those conversations just kind of dovetailed into the Feels Good Man experience. I had been a fan of Matt Fury's artwork. Matt Fury is the subject of Feels Good Man, and he's the cartoonist who drew Pepe the Frog. And so I'd been a fan of his comics before he became, before Pepe became a meme, before he became a hate symbol. Mm. And I was friends with Matt. And I think Giorgio and I both realized that Pepe was this very unique case study in how the internet has changed all of social interaction. And so it was just a subject matter that I think excited both of us. Cool. And then you just made it. Yeah, basically. basically. (laughs) Is the the podcast over now? Is that it? Yeah, we made it. it. We're done. The film's done. It was exported. We were were doing the final, uh, it was funny. The process of making own took about five years, but Arthur was one of the first people I talked to about the film. So he was like a great confidant in the sort of shaping of the story of own throughout the whole process, even though his actual tangible 
contribution didn't happen until the very, very end because obviously animations get placed at the end. Right. And so like in that post-production moment when we were finally delivering the film to our distributors and going to film festivals, Arthur was like, hey, I've got this project uh, with my friend Matt. And I was like, cool, I want to move to Los Angeles. So this mm. is a great excuse. <laughs> and this is an incredible story. And yeah, just I just re- remember the first conversation we had about it. I was walking in Brooklyn and I think I walked from Greenpoint all the way to Dumbo and back, just talking about all the different threads that this story had. Right. I know it's intense. It's intense. And the thing, the thing, it's funny, the whole thing for me gets encapsulated in that sort of liminal place that Pepe occupies and the film occupies and Trump occupied and Keck occupies between is it a joke or is it serious? And how for Trump saying all the things he said, the way he did it gave him plausible deniability on pretty much everything. Is it a joke? Oh, he's just joking, but he's not. He's just, you know, and, and Keck or before Keck, right. Which could be considered the more evil application of, of Pepe, even Pepe though, in the good way, Pepe in the, Abby Hoffman, Paul Krasner, Timothy Leary, Rick Linkletter, Slacker way occupies that perfect space between defiance and joke. He's radically in between that you don't really, you don't know, but it's the happy way of it. It's like, does he mean it or not? Is he a slacker or not? You know, it's like, it was so perfect. I mean, Pepe's, you know, he he was used as a tool to jam the culture, you know, it was something that obviously like in Matt's early comics, there's kind of this subtle consumerist critique. The characters in the comic books often speak to each other in marketing catchphrases. Mm -hmm. They speak to each other without like a lot of personality. It's sort of like they've been programmed by TV and video games and they're regurgitating the content. Right, like they came out of like a Doug Copeland novel or something. Completely. Like post-consumer, Bart Simpson, you know, post-cynical dude. Yeah, absolutely. And so I do think that the people that ended up picking up Pepe and using him as a tool in the 2015 moment where Pepe was, you know, retweeted by Donald Trump, where, you know, he was used by the quote-unquote alt-right, I think people did sort of recognize that Pepe was this kind of like weird reverberation from Gen X culture through this hyper-consumerist moment. And it was a rejection of that kind of consumerism, which is kind of, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of an interesting take on what it all came to be. Yeah. And it's like, I think if you talk to a lot of the more cynical, I mean, I don't know how much your audience probably comes into this conversation knowing the history of Pepe, but like the transformation is quite astonishing. And I think for the people who were kind of the the most notable, for better or worse, Pepe adopters in 2015, the kind of more far right, trolly, mean spirited people, their cynical perspective is often that like they were doing a favor to Matt and making his comic popular and reverberating culture. But the truth is of course, far more complicated right. than that. Like Hitler. It's like Hitler telling the Buddhists that he made their swastika more popular. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or the idea that like even the, even the more kind of uh, ambivalent adopters of Pepe, they often think of, of Matt as like this and his creation is this happy accident. But the truth is like there are reasons for this. Like 
to, to Arthur's point, like boys club is a pretty searing in its own silly way, social critique of like hyper consumerism and capitalism and just feeling like you're, you're stuck in this like perpetual state of regurgitating ad copy. And so like that gets adopted into the vocabulary of like early internet users who are themselves people who feel alienated from society and Pepe becomes like their avatar for very reasonable, obvious ways. And of course it, from there, it's really where it metastasizes into something much darker and reappropriated and reused by people who really have no, um, you know, good faith intention of like having, (laughs) solving these issues. They're just interested in like embarrassing people and, and being shitty to one another. There's a, there was something fun and appropriate about the cultural critique, certainly that Matt Fury was doing with the book. And I've talked a lot about, you know, Operation Mindfuck and Robert Anton Wilson and the Church of Discordia and all, and this this need to destabilize established yuppie top-down culture with good, you know, bottom-up humor and pranks, really. But it's like, and, and I can see the early part of the Trump campaign as part of that almost positive anti-establishment fever that it's like, um, when, you know, people magazine used to do the sexiest man of the year, this thing, this contest, and they would let the people magazine readers vote. And I remember, uh, Howard Stern started this campaign to get Hank, the angry dwarf elected, People's Man of the Year. And it was this whole thing. And I think they did it. They succeeded. And People Magazine had a nod to it, but then put it aside and say, but actually, you know, it's George Clooney. To me, the Trump campaign kind of felt like that at the beginning. And the way that the kids online using Pepe for it, it didn't seem like they intended to win so much as let's just culture jam the election with a figure as ridiculous as Donald Trump. I mean, it's funny you mentioned that People Magazine thing and Howard Stern because 2009, Christopher Poole, who was the teenager who created 4chan, basically was voted Time Man of the Year in a very similar trolling <laughs> manner. <laughs> All of 4chan got together and in mass basically took took down the online poll and voted for him millions and millions of times. And that's great. And he's the original kid in the wheelchair. No, no, that's Frederick uh, Brennan. And he's the 8chan uh, creator. Yeah. So 4chan uh, uh, <laughs> was created by Chris Poole. And Chris Poole was like a 15-year-old living in New York. You know, he was someone who was like an insomniac. He was obsessed with anime. And he created 4chan based on uh, 2channel, which was a um, message board that was very right. popular in Japan. And then Frederick, then sort of the person that created 8chan, was a, was a user of 4chan. He participated in sort of the R9K board, which is like the incel board on 4chan. Mm. And um, then he created his own chan. So the story of the chans is kind of this like handoff. As one thing gets kind of like shut down and becomes too toxic and collapses under its own weight, another one pops up. And, you know, part of our story was talking about how the aesthetics of trolling really moved off of these message boards and then came to dominate the news cycle and mainstream politics. And Pepe is such a goofy, weird, insane, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. cartoon to, to tell this story through. It's a really important inflection point that I think maybe got swept under the radar, right? This moment where these people who felt disempowered, who had a lot of power on their virtual worlds and the internet 
you know, we, we reached this kind of event horizon point where internet culture really started becoming culture culture and their interest in fucking with reality. Sorry, can we cuss on this podcast? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, their interest in fucking with reality and trolling people with their Trump memes and stuff ended up having like real life effects. And it, it is this really important inflection point that we kind of have to understand and chronicle that like that as our real world selves and our internet selves have kind of like merged into one weird goo, the people who control the flows of information on the internet have actually a great amount of of influence than they maybe previously thought. I mean, the part that troubles me about it is as a, a person who comes from the tradition of pranksters and situationists and ad busters and all, it seemed to me such an essential part of critical thinking. But now I'm thinking, dang, we kind of can't, we kind of can't handle the truth, you know, <laughs> that, that, and also it's that the, the internet was such a safe space for this kind of thing. Cause the internet wasn't real. It was a play space. And now somehow by putting like banking and politics and news and facts on there, we kind of, now we can't play anymore. Now you, you can't you be a, a prankster slacker in this space. Yeah. The stakes are much different now. That's like, that's exactly right. Is it like the people who <laughs> perpetrated this prank, some of them maybe got some buyer's remorse, but others had to kind of like double and triple down into their determination and like, oh, no, no, we actually really willed this to happen and and we like what's happening. But I think that's very true. And that's the moment that we're in right now, right, is like how these pranks end up turning into real life stuff, probably most notably currently with QAnon is like a perfect example. Like that starts as a joke on message boards. And then now all of a sudden it's like the animating principle behind one of the two major political systems. And, or and one of them. Yeah. <laughs> one of the two. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, you know, it's reality TV taking over TV or taking over the world. You know, it's like the fictional TV and reality TV have changed places in some ways, you know, and you get, you know, these sort of hyper accurate portrayals of the world in a 20 part Netflix fictional series. And then the news is just lies and crazy, crazy talk. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, the other, of course, big elephant in the room of this whole conversation is the role that memes play in all this, obviously, right? Because memes are the linguistical tool set that generates information and knowledge very rapidly on the internet. So then as the internet becomes so intertwined with real life, with banking and politics, like you said, they start to adopt this form of language. And I think, you know, the, again, the reason why Pepe is such, this, such an incredible way to look at this moment is because he obviously is probably one of the, what, top three most notable memes in, in the world. And like to really understand how memes travel through society and really past knowledge in, in a very particular and peculiar way is kind of one of the single most important, I, I would argue, one of the single most important things to understand in uh, culture right now. Yeah. And mimetic appropriation and all. I mean, you know, I wrote this book way back when in the early 90s called Media Virus, where it was really the, the taking the idea of memes and, and looking at how they move through popular culture. And at the time, I was kind of optimistic in a sense that viral media would necessarily express these 
repressed views in popular culture that as long as we could develop immune deficiency or, or, or an immune response to a meme, then we'll get kind of healthier as a result. So I looked at, you know, the Rodney King tape as the original media virus and how it spread because we had to have this conversation we weren't having about police brutality and race relations and Los Angeles and urban crime and all these things. So it seemed to me so like this was going to be a healthy alternative to the top-down Rupert Murdoch-driven media, and I, mean, I don't know. I guess I was wrong. I, uh, I don't think I. You know, I, I think culturally, it's really hard for people to separate the signal from the noise when there's so much stuff coming at them. Right. And I think when you know, I think I think that it can be bewildering. And then when you have something like QAnon, which essentially kind of this like. You know, so much of QAnon is really about kind of this human irrationality that's colliding up against algorithmic recommendation, machine learning, this sort of stuff. You know, I think it was something that no one could have ever predicted, but it's something that we have to look at with a certain amount of seriousness. It's funny, Josh, you know, who met you before I did, the producer of the podcast, he, uh, as a final project in our, uh, I forgot what we called it, like narrative lab, looking at sort of post-linear narrative stuff. And he uh, did a ritual to save Pepe from Keck. It was this big magic ritual, and he made he made you know uh, bumper stickers and things, and and you know got people to to sign up for stuff. And then we did this magical ritual in the room with the candles and the lights out, where we liberated Pepe. He came out as a gay <laughs> frog because he listened to. Uh, uh, who was it? That Alex, was Jones. Alex Jones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who was saying that the liberals were putting stuff in the water that was turning frogs gay. And so he heard that and then he becomes gay. And um, <laughs> and we sent out all these tweets. And it was like the next day that the alt-right retired. They they gave Pepe back. Remember when they said it's okay? It's a, a, He's not ours anymore. They, they, we've retired him. And uh, – we felt like we did it. We were the <laughs> Maybe you did. I mean, I think that putting that energy out in the universe must do something. But there is something magical about memetics as well. Totally. Absolutely. You know, memes as sigils of some kind and how they spread. No, I think to your point about, you know, this is what makes them both really exciting but also very dangerous because they are a bottom-up form of kind of populist narrative development, right? Like there's something that in the film, we interviewed a Trump surrogate, someone who worked, he was like the head of data or something uh-huh. anyway. <laughs> um, but you know, his, his position was that the Trump supporters in 2015 were, were something of a meme army and that, that there was something very important about the way that memes and politics work in that, like, if you can create a meme that is really potent, it can get retweeted by the president and end up like changing the conversation. So it really has the net in terms of politics, at least it has a net effect of kind of inverting the traditional relationships between politician and voter, where typically, you know, the politician through a complicated series of polling and stuff creates this uh, kind of contrived rhetorical position. And then they speak to the masses and the masses either respond to it or don't. In this situation, the masses are actually creating the messaging and the algorithms sort of help in permeating those messages. And then the politicians themselves either choose to adopt those memes or not. Right. So it's like that in some sense is very exciting because it means that, that people essentially have a voice, but the real question then is one about intentionality. And that's really the story of, 
politics and memes right now, because once people in political power understood the power of memes, they started then kind of manipulating those flows of information and trying to like rig the system in a way. And I think that's, that's the world that we're living in right now. On the flip side, you had someone like Michael Bloomberg, who running for president as a Democrat tried to hack the system by just throwing money at it and hiring <laughs> meme experts to create pro Bloomberg memes. But of course, like it's antithetical to, you know, there's some element of sorcery to it, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, which is interesting, but there's also a, a, a willingness to be possessed. You know, when I tried to look at precursors to Trump, the best one I could find was Charlie Sheen. You know, there was the big uh, uh, kind of revolution or failed revolution in, in Egypt and Iran and the net and Twitter was really serious places for a little bit. We had just sort of bared witness to these failed revolutions and all. And then in the wake of that disappointment came Charlie Sheen, you know, and I felt like he didn't do you know for people who don't know he's the son of martin sheen and he just went nuts he basically had a giant speed induced nervous breakdown online and, and, and did shows and all sorts of stuff and i felt like he didn't do it so much as he like jumped into this standing wave of culture and just kind of surfed it and embodied it and and of course crashed and burned and then when i looked at trump like what you're saying his ability to feedback oh listen to that meme listen to that one oh there's a nice little nazi one oh look hillary with a jewish star and i'm gonna it was just this like little curation thing but then he he embodied something almost like he didn't exist himself like he's just mm. the 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 flow totally yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's interesting. I mean, the memes also, the people that are creating these memes and sharing the memes then have like a real emotional attachment to this candidate too. Like they feel like they're participating in a way that, you know, before you couldn't do in politics. So that did create this emotional stickiness, I think, that was very attractive to some people who felt like they didn't have power. This felt like they were giving themselves power in the social media space. And that was yep. very satisfying. Yeah, it's like Star Trek or, or, or J.K. Rowling fan fiction without the TV show or the books. You know, it's like fan fiction became central rather than oh, wow that's adjunct. fascinating yeah yeah that's wild. <laughs> yeah like you're 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 creating fan fiction in real time in real life and right. yes that's true because trump just becomes an avatar for the will of the masses oh, he, exactly. he becomes he comes geotis he becomes the god emperor trump in the QAnon movement or mm -hmm. he becomes the guy like rambo standing on top of the tank blowing people away <laughs> on the flag but he doesn't have to do or think much to do that right you just post a meme and then it is the thing right <laughs> yeah he's a passive vessel you don't even need your own memes right you could basically you could rule not by tweet, but by retweet, you know? Yeah. But that was like, <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was yeah. something, you know, this is often the catch 22 of it because is, is it that, is it that Trump and his crew saw this and willed it into existence or is it, is it the people themselves? And I think something that we show in the film is that within an, within an hour of basically Trump announcing his candidacy for presidency, like, 4chan just like comes alive and they're like this is our guy he's brash he hates pc culture he he's a misogynist you know he's like a perfect vehicle for he is the consummate 
alpha troll and all we have to do is like feed him our lines and he'll just regurgitate it because he's basically like this bad trolley comedian who needs content (laughs) so they provide it and we all can't help but feed the trolls i mean i still i'm so stupid i can't help it i'm still i'll tweet something from one of my articles or a podcast and i'll look at all the nice comments it'd be like 500 nice and then there's that one that one that says that nasty, horrible thing. And it's like, oh, I got to respond to that. I got to neutralize him. It's like, why do we? I mean, it's such a. <laughs> Giorgio has been running our social media account. He has that same impulse. Yes, unfortunately. I, yeah, I, I, on the other hand, I just, I tune it all out. I try to stay above the fray, but it is, it is very hard to do. And something else is interesting about, about, you know, looking at the history of Giorgio's work in this is, you know, the relationship of something like redlining to this story too that really what you're what you're looking at at least from my perspective are these kind of these feedback loops of systems of control and the people within them then the people within them's behavior changes and it's like once the feedback is established this kind of goes to Jacques Ellul really in his theory of propaganda once the feedback loop is established who do you blame People are racist, so we get red lines, and red lines make people more racist because now their property values are dependent mm. on the fact that no black person move into their neighborhood. So it's you know what I mean? It it wow. reinforces racism, or is it just Robert Moses sitting in a room <laughs> screwing screwing everybody up? No, that's that's really fascinating. I mean, that's something Arthur and I definitely talked about after Feels Good Man came out, is just to think about I think it's always nice to look back at your work and see if there's like a common thread. And I think yeah. the thing we kind of came away with was that owned was about the commoditization of physical infrastructures and feels good, man. It's really about the commoditization of virtual infrastructures and that mm-hmm. they both tend to operate in similar ways. And I think you kind of explained it really well is creating these feedback loops that benefit the kind of people at the top, right? They create a system that benefits from segregation and creating higher artificial hierarchies and rules that benefit the few at the expense of the many. There's like, yeah, eerily <laughs> prescient, yeah, corollaries between the two for sure. Feels good, man. Is is happier? It's a <laughs> yeah. happier story ultimately. <laughs> yeah. well, that's, that's nice. I mean, we we worked hard for this film to have a lot of humor and a lot of poetry. Because, you know, there's kind of this thing that happens in sci-fi and then also happens a lot in documentary where um, you feel like all hope is lost and you're just sort of sitting in that negativity. But, you know, as artists, we did want to insert our own will into the story. And then we also wanted the story to be representative of who Matt Fury is and kind of the conclusions that he made about Pepe throughout the course of the film. And, you know, and then this is Team Human. We also wanted the film to have like a very kind of humanist center. We wanted it to come back to um, relationships and community and nature. That was something that we felt like um, ending the film the way we did was really important to us as artists. We didn't want to just sort of have this thing where the machines take over and hope is lost. We wanted people to walk away from this feeling like they learned something, but also feeling hopeful and maybe inspired. But yeah, we, we wanted it to be like a funny, weird film that, <laughs> that, that had a lot of different emotional layers to it. Yeah, Matt. Matt puts forward this idea of like, of hardcore happiness, which I think, you know, on its face can maybe seem a little ephemeral or woo wooey kind of hippie logic, but it, you know, I think is really important and profound and something that we wanted people to be left with in the film is understanding, understanding these systems, right. And the same, like going just back to 
the issues of, of owned versus feels good, man, being aware of the infrastructure that you're inhabiting online and that the system is designed in a lot of ways to divide us and put us into categories so that it can then market things to us in a more efficient and predictable manner. And the net effect of that is that we end up being really horrible to one another, right? And that's the value for the people in control is, is, is that that anger produces attention and clicks and income. And so hardcore happiness is kind of this position to, to, to be aware that you don't have to, you don't have to take the bait in a sense. You don't have to play the role of the troll and play by the rules of the internet in real life because real life is real life. Real life is not the internet. There is something kind of Buddhist about the way he moves through the world. It's it's like the the spiritual lesson that I feel like Rick Linkletter and the Slackers were trying to teach us, you know, coming out into the recession of the 1980s. It was like, dudes, you can have just total fun. Just get a shit job, enough to live on, and then read philosophy, sit in a cafe, talk with your friends. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be rich to read Artaud and Camus and, you know, and get super smart and nerdy and fun or just come to this show or walk around with Madonna's pubic hair in a jar, whatever it is, <laughs> you know, there's that. And and the interesting thing about the way, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but the way you used Matt Fury's wife in the movie is really interesting. I mean, maybe this is just as an American, still unevolved guy, right? Right. So I'm watching Matt Fury and thinking, oh, this guy is kind of out there. He's kind of a slacker. He didn't really make money and he worked in a thrift store. And then you meet his wife, who's this just, just gorgeous, brilliant, articulate, grounded. And the way she talks about him, you go, oh man, this is no incel. This is the fucking king of the world. <laughs> He's writing a comic book for fun. He's married to this. He's got these friends. It's like, He's like Pepe. It just works, you know? It just <laughs> it just works if you just let go and let your life manifest in the spirit of fun. Yeah, but again, the rules of the internet kind of thwart that constantly, right? There were I mean, the rules of the internet plus the sort of material social conditions of the real world that we have to right exist in. You know, for a lot of people, younger people especially, I think the internet convinces you that there's this kind of shortcut or path to, to success that necessarily requires you to kind of monetize every waking hour of your life and turn yourself into this, for lack of a better term, like slave to the attention economy, where every everything that you create and do in your day is potential content. Right. And it really creates a profound sense of anxiety <laughs> and alienation. It does. And this is largely among the privileged classes. That's the thing. And it ends up squandering privilege, squandering the time and life of the privileged many at this point. I mean, there are many privileged people in America. It's like you could be doing something so much more valuable and you could be creating value for others rather than just panicking over you know, the artificial status of your, your you know, the Twitch account. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, they're kind of like two different youth culture moments. The moment that you're describing with Matt and Ayana and their friends in San Francisco, you know, those comics were, you know, they had some satire within them, but they were comics that Matt made for his friends. He would go to the bar and give them out to people. Um, mm -hmm. He worked at this thrift shop, but the thrift shop is really just a community of people. They're people who yes. worked at that thrift shop for 20 years. 
And most of them are artists who live in the mission. You know, it's one of the last places in the mission that really kind of feels like, you know, the 80s or 90s version of the mission. And so, you know, it was this Gen X version of youth culture where people flooded to the cities. They sought real community. There was art and music and all of this stuff happening. And then 4chan takes all of that and just puts it entirely online. Turns right. this like very social process into kind of an antisocial process, and it's mm. really, um, yeah, it's this this flip of of art over like being handed off from one generation to the next. And there's this other way it happens, though. I mean, I remember when, um, I mean, I was part of that. You know, I really was. I ten years. 12 years of making, you know, six, $7,000 a year and somehow living, you know, tutoring SATs when I needed rent. But then I almost accidentally, I sold the book proposal for my first book, Siberia. And it's like, I lost friends. It's like, I've got mm. an offer. It was like $30,000 to write a book. And it was like, that seemed like such a massive amount of $30,000. And I've got more than a year, you know, a little over a year to spend it. It's like, Wow. But it was like, do I take it? Can I even do it? It felt like, you know, the Clash getting that deal on Columbia Records. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, this is the sellout moment. And it, it, But then they make Sandinista, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that, I, I straddle the generation between, you know, the millennial. I'm an older millennial, like late mm. Gen Xer. But, yeah, that's what's really interesting is that between these two worlds that Arthur has just described – the 4chan world and kind of the Gen X comic book world, they share a similar critique of culture, but the response is like, is a lot different. And something that I think essential to that response is that the, the, the Gen X people are still seem to be consumed by this nagging fear of being the sellout. And so they become, <laughs> it's the punk damage yeah, that we all and have. You become yeah. like fear, fearful of your own shadow. Whereas like right. the 4chan, but it saved us yeah. from going. I mean, would we have gone down the, I don't, I can't imagine. I mean, getting, but could, would we have there, but for the grace of God, go, we, would, <laughs> could we, <laughs> there's something else holding us back from becoming that. I mean, and I think it's our respect for women and people of color. And I mean, you can't make a movie about redlining and become a satiric Trump supporter at the same time. Oh, for sure. For sure. No, no. <laughs> Thank God that didn't happen to no, Georgia no, while sure. we were making this I know. It's like, hey, this Trump guy, not so I bad. I guess I just mean like <laughs> the flip that happens is that the younger generation maintain the same criticism, but then they're also like, well, fuck all this nonsense about like selling out. Like it's doggy dog out there right. and I don't give a shit right. who gets hurt in my path. You know, the system is fucked. I'm now just completely what we call irony pilled or black pilled, you know, where it just becomes a purely nihilistic response to the conditions that, and the belief that nothing can change. And so then just get what's yours in any way possible. Right. And you use like Mark Zuckerberg as your hero instead of, uh, you know, <laughs> whoever Nelson Mandela or somebody. <laughs> I mean, it's also just, you know, I think that it's the two generations handling their righteous anger in kind of different ways. I think that, to a certain degree, the slacker generation, there's less population there. It was something I think where a lot of people who are part of Gen X kind of always knew that maybe they wouldn't have the same cultural footprint in terms of democracy and all of these <laughs> yeah. things. So they were kind of a little bit maybe resigned to their fate 
and therefore they kind of purposely checked out of culture and then culture all of a sudden just checked out on them they just marketed them nihilism essentially yeah and then this new generation it's a different kind of outrage and instead they're really like owning their outrage in a slightly different way and i'm hoping that some of that like nihilistic intensity is washing out but you know i guess that remains to be seen over the next few years i mean it, it may be i'm i'm interested so your next project you're working on is sort of about memes? <laughs> it, I mean, it, we're, we're working on a project that's hopefully, um, it is about memes, but it's also about the history of image boards. And it's really about this idea that image boards, which were these silly, relative, I mean, silly seeming forums for kids to trade anime, cartoons, you know, pop culture stuff, created these real world movements that ended up kind of jamming all of culture like we've been talking about. So it's kind of this, it's taking the feels good man story and then pulling out to much a much larger perspective. And that's what we're kicking around right now. And hopefully we can we can bring that into reality. It's interesting because when you said image boards, what popped to mind for me was, you know, how um, like when people do the secret or something, one of those like new age cults, they create those, um, what do they call them? Image yeah, boards? Vision bo- vision boards. Vision boards. But it's interesting because a vision board is meant as sort of a magical sigil where you put up all the things that you want to, pictures from magazines of all the things you want to manifest in your life or your career in the world. And you have it up and you look at it all the time and eventually you like get it, think it, get it, have it. I don't know. There's some three-part thing that yeah, happens. You can manifest magic. it. Yeah. Right. And, and the idea of image boards... Uh, serving in a sense that function that people collaboratively create this world that then becomes it happens <laughs> yeah no it becomes an illuminated manuscript that gets enacted i, I mean know. it is it is you know we talked to an occultist and feels good man his name's john michael greer because we wanted on 4chan people talk about meme magic all the time right. and it's tongue-in-cheek but i do think that people who spend 12 to 14 hours a day on image boards do believe in the power of groupthink and the mass mind and the hive mind of these places. And even real magic is wink, wink. Talk to Aleister Crowley. I mean, you can't because he's, well, unless he's somewhere. (laughs) We'd have to break out the Ouija board right now, Exactly, but it's half, I mean, it's real, but it's not. You put the robes on and the crown, it's camp at the same time that it's dead serious. Absolutely. And so, I mean, the way John talked about magic in the interview, which we didn't end up using this snippet, but, you know, he says that magic is essentially the politics of the powerless or the unheard. And I think that that has always been this this sort of um, artistic aspiration to change your conditions through, you know, the art that you make, your focused intention through the community that you have, even if you don't actually have like real agency. And so I do think that the internet does have this kind of ancient um, reverberation that we're now seeing people pick up in things like Keck, which is a joke, but does have some sort of power because we Keck give it that is power. not a joke. I mean, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not superstitious, but I believe in the Egyptian gods still having power over us and our civilization. I mean, they're there for no other reason that they're deep in our DNA. I mean, yeah. the whole Bible. Sure. Or, the Jewish part of it is about getting out of those cults and trying to have a, a faceless God, not, you know, having graven images that, that when they retrieved Keck for Pepe, which is, you know, for people who don't know, Keck is this like Egyptian frog 
god with all these other uh is he the frog god yeah he's the god of chaos essentially yeah but yeah he has a frog's head yeah he's a frog's head and they basically merged him with pepe they gave pepe all this like primordial juice of millions of dead egyptians under pyramids and stuff which to people like me get scary uh-huh. it's like oh shoot <laughs> This is the incredible paradox, though, right? Because you have this group of people who are simultaneously animated by this idea of meme magic, whether they, some think it's a joke or not. Like, I think, I think we all kind of agree that collective action is meaningful and is probably pretty real. But then it gets filtered through a politics of hyper-individualism. And so then it can't actually really coalesce any meaningful material changes in these people's lives. The irony on top of irony of this paradox is that they don't see the shortcomings of their own little game that they've set up. But that's the question, you know, and that's sort of the difference between the two movies of yours. Anyway, is the people who were embracing Trump and Keck and this sort of change, I don't think they wanted the benefits of better technocratic administration of the economy. I feel like they were willing, I'll take a cut in income as long as I get to have my spine back. You know, I was watching uh, The Crown of all things, that Netflix show. I talked about it with the listeners a couple of months ago and they got like baby Queen Elizabeth is getting taught or she's like 12, whatever, when she knows she's going to be queen and they're teaching her about what the queen is for. And the guy says, her teacher says, well, you know, we've got parliament for the efficiency of the state, and we have the monarchy for the dignity of the state. And I feel like even though it was totally a joke, what they were seeking was to be recognized as you know young incel men with feelings who've been downtrodden. It was a matter of pride, you know, almost intersectional recognition more than bettering their station in life. For sure. And I think that's that's where the paradox comes in, right? Because the moment that Trump retweets himself as Trump Pepe, it's this moment that it's a kind of wink wink to this group of people that they find to be politically valuable yeah. in this new kind of social media attention economy era. It is. It's Elon Musk saying Dogecoin, right. you know? But that's the that's the trick though, is right, is because they recognize these aggrieved group of people who are looking for dignity and righteousness and agency in this world. And then they fill them up with all these sort of, unfortunately, long trodden replacement theory bullshit, like about like where you should be in your lot in life and that you should blame immigrants and women. And- right. But this is the same thing they told people getting their mortgages in the red line communities of yep. New York in 1945, yeah. you know? Yeah. This is your piece of the rock. This is your neighborhood manifest destiny to the suburbs totally but i will say when you when you see even at the capitol riot someone showed up with a kekistan flag and at this point (laughs) a lot of this stuff is played out right and certainly if you were to look on these image boards you would think that kekistan has this really kind of outsized place within that community but when you see the people come off the message boards and into the protests there's a palpable sense of loneliness with a lot of these guys. When you see them mingling in the crowd with their Kekistani flag, the evangelical Trump supporters don't know what that's about. They're still feeling as though they are isolated and lonely within this larger mass. And I think that 
you know, it, it just speaks to this generation that really doesn't know how to fit in and they can't replace real community with these message board communities that are very like satisfying in these like, you know, these little dopamine hits that they get from fighting with people online. But if you don't replace it with um, a real community, it still feels exceptionally hollow. And I do think that a lot of this stuff no longer has appeal the way that it did five or six years ago. I think people recognize that it's something that is unsatisfying and that these jokes don't really have caloric value. Yeah. And COVID, of course, complicated all this because, you know, it forced (laughs) a larger set of the population to be passed through the same system, right? So before COVID, you had, I was at least optimistically looking at people aging out of 4chan and aging out of this kind of condition that Arthur just described. But then COVID and QAnon had the net effect of kind of pushing a whole new group, Mm. an older generation, a generation that's like far less internet savvy in through the same kind of sausage maker of image board culture. Because at the end of the day, like Facebook groups operate astonishingly similar to 4chan, right? Like it is, it is the same. It's the same same thing. thing. You know, the interesting thing for me, though, and I know we overuse the word, but I felt particularly traumatized by the Trump era. I'm allowed to say that, right? I mean, I know I wasn't beaten up or anything really bad, but emotionally traumatized by it. And partly because I was so close to memetics for so long and so hopeful about the net and memes and taking back culture to see all of the stuff I was most hopeful for become the tools of the worst of the worst was really really, I cried many times, really, really upsetting. And one of the things about this movie, which is remarkable, I think it's the animation of it, is there's something tremendously healing about watching it, you know, because poor Pepe got anchored in my mind as Keck, as the horrible thing, as the little sideways one, you know, the three-quarter sideways one that was so bad. And by reclaiming him in the in the way you did and having these kind of smooth psychedelic transitions which are so non-twitter do you know what i mean they're so soft more like a like, like a duncan trussell's midnight gospel totally. you know transformational thing that it was um it was actually physically emotionally spiritually healing to go through that movie just even the first you know 5 minutes of the movie where he melts through those those scenes that I think it's important for people who experienced the certainly who experienced this story from one perspective or the other to go through the experience of feels good man because it can feel good man you know? <laughs> I love that that's very I mean that, yeah that yeah that means a lot to me I mean I, I'm a cartoonist that's what excited me initially about this project was, you know, I think people in culture often dismiss cartoons too quickly, right. but they, they do have, they, they carry all of this amazing information with them. And this film was a chance to really make um, a statement about power of cartoons, the power of images. And I think that we also saw that the animation in it um, was a way to r- really help people understand this and appreciate a certain amount of beauty so that it didn't just seem like a low, a bunch of low-res JPEGs flashing through 4chan, right. that it really was bringing you this world of imagination that Matt had initially intended. 
it was an editorial challenge to just kind of fit all these parts together. But when we finally figured out the right way to mix it all together and have the illustrations um, and the animation sit a slight layer above the rest of the storytelling, yeah, it felt really good. Because I mean, I imagine if, um, like, if I had gotten to make this for, say, PBS Frontline, where I've made most of my stuff, mm-hmm. it'd be like, kick, threat to American democracy. That's what we did not want to do. It's true. Well, you know, we made this during the moment, like, we'd started shooting this basically right after the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. And, you know, we watched a lot of the stuff that was coming out of a lot of the media you know, the frontline style documentaries that were coming out of that. And we felt like it was almost giving the alt-right maybe a little too much power. People like Richard mm. Spencer and Milo just had too much stage presence in, in a lot of the stuff that was being made in that moment. And so we really wanted Feels Good Man to stand apart from a lot of that kind of storytelling because we thought that it would give like this broader appeal to it. And what you're talking about, this sort of like, we think about what we do online as being very isolated on our phone, on our computer, but just the ripple effect of like, oh, you sharing a Pepe meme in whatever context does actually affect the sweet guy and his family in a particular way. Um, I do think that it helps. We, we wanted it to feel healing. We wanted justice for Pepe. <laughs> we wanted a bunch of things from it. Yeah, We did think that maybe this would um, just help people think about how they process their social media selves in a, in a different way and realize that, that what they do online isn't in a vacuum. Yeah. And to that end, I mean, I, I think Arthur does too. I mean, just the psychic anguish that Trump inflicted on culture was just, it was all encompassing both his image on your screens everywhere. And just the palpable kind of anger that was energy that he put into the world was deeply toxic and mind numbing. But there, I will say there are some greatly positive things about memes that I just want to like kind of buttress this whole conversation around because throughout all this, you know, people like, for example, last summer during the the height of the BLM movement, you know, people started doing that black square thing on social media and very predictably and very early in its lifespan, people started being cynical about it. Like, Oh, this is just like performative social justice stuff. But in hindsight, I'm kind of looking back at it and being like, well, what does it matter actually? Because the net effect was like, man, over the course of like six weeks, the polling of people who supported BLM went from like 40, 60 to 60, 40 in favor of like these long held sort of belief that there's racial injustice. And like, if some really popular, but like deeply insincere social media person wants to post a black square, it's giving license to maybe potentially millions more, more sincere people to feel like they can come out and talk about a difficult subject. And so like that, to me, that's like a good example of like actually how memes can positively work and that we have to like disentangle authorship and intentionality with the kind of net effect and understand how memes really function in that way. Right. I mean, the trick with memes, I mean, Originally, the thing that my problem with memes or viruses really was that you lose credit for them once you launch them. You know, I used to launch a lot of ideas out there into the meme space, and I would never get credit or work better money, you know, for any of them, right? They're just gone. Um, but the other thing is you're inviting mutation, you know, and it's, it's, if you want to, I mean, you could write a book and then your ideas are between the covers, locked down, printed. They can't really change much. But a meme 
between the first time you launch it and the next person who passes it, they could flip the whole meaning of it and send it on to, to its doom. Or improve upon it. You know, that's, yeah, that's the double-edged sword. But it's not the meme evolving. I mean, it depends who gets it and who does what and how clever they are. You know, you even look at like the big lie as a meme. Trump intelligently said, okay, there is a big lie. The big lie is that the, it's the election itself. Not, you know, memetics is a, is a tricky battlefield is all. But that's the beauty of it. You know, I guess that was it, that the beauty of the memetic battlefield is the little guy is just as powerful as the big one because anybody could tweak a meme like an adbusters person could put tombstones on Marlboro country and all of a sudden, ha, we got you. You know, what did they used to call that? Detournement, you know. It makes social critique very accessible for sure. It also just allows people to maybe understand the system that they're part of Mm -hmm. um, to a certain degree. And I think for a lot of people, that's a hard thing to navigate mentally. But I think memes, when they're pointing out these relatively simple truths in a variety of different, slightly remixed and readapted ways, I do think that it does shift culture in in unique ways like Giorgio is talking about. And, you know, we were very happy during the Trump administration to have something like this film to fixate on. Right. It was it was psychically difficult for us too, but the fact that we could kind of like witness all of the same stuff that you're talking about and then turn it into art is something that was really self-actualizing. And even like as we're talking right now, I feel like, you know, I'm a cartoonist as my background. I never I'm not someone who necessarily feels comfortable talking about social media or politics or anything like that. But to a certain degree, I've taken all of the memes, I've ingested all of it, I've cut it back up, I've used my own sort of language within it, and spit it back out. I think that memes have greatly informed the way that I'm able to talk about this film, the way that um, we were able to like, edit the film and critique each other's work while we were, you know, piecing together all the disparate elements in the film. It's fascinating. It was really part of our process. Yeah, I know. It's funny because I guess while you were making this movie, I was writing this big piece called uh, Media Virus, My Problem Child, you know, (laughs) based on, you know, Albert Hoffman when he wrote about LSD. He said, my problem, LSD, my problem child, feeling kind of bad that the way viral media went. But, you know, the only place I could conclude was that we've got to build our our coherence and resiliency as people, you know, so that we can have appropriate immune responses to the viruses coming in and communities through which to uh, absorb the impact of these things. So if you're doing it alone on your on your iPhone in the corner of your room, you're just lost. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think above all, the film is really a piece of media literacy to help people navigate this moment where I think coming out of 2016, you had a lot of people, especially older people, just kind of wondering like, how the hell did this all happen? Where is this coming from? Why, where did QAnon come from? Why am I seeing this green frog everywhere? Like that there are actually very traceable reasons for all of this. And we're at a moment now where again, like the internet has become such a, like the internet life and real life have become so entangled that it's important that we take time to codify these moments in internet history as actual history because they are because mm-hmm. the problem is when that legibility becomes too blurred right and you don't understand the forces behind it all or you chalk it all up to the chaos of the internet it's actually a lot less i would say a lot less chaotic than it, it might seem and so hopefully feels good man is going to become one of many more films not necessarily just by us but people trying to make sense of of all this 
Yeah, it is interesting because the internet is it it conveys this sense of timelessness. I wrote about it in this book, Present Shock, and 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 the Pope just wrote about it. You know, the sort of ahistorical quality of time right now. And that's a problem, you know, and that by going back, I mean, film is linear by its nature. It starts middle, you know, beginning, middle, end. It's like, oh, right, we are still in history. It didn't just like stop in 1994. It's still going. And there are these moments, you know, we, you know, some of them are, are sweet, like, you know, Winnebago man and, <laughs> and the Star Wars kid, you know, and some of them are a little bit more virulent, like uh, Pepe de Keck and back again. Uh, and it's, I, I think you're right. The trick is, you know, and this was shortly after Trump was elected, I had um, Dana Boyd on the show and she's a media theorist, a d- data theorist. And she was saying the prop, the reason why we got Trump is not too little media literacy, but too much. I mean, and I can understand her point that people started to talk back to the screen enough and question authority so much that they don't believe anything. I, I mean, I'm not sure. I do want to know, though, if Winnebago Man was at the Capitol siege. That seems like something that <laughs> he, he, might, he uh, might have showed up <laughs> on the floor of Congress next to Q Common. Seems like that would be in his character. Yeah, I mean, Dana knows probably more about this stuff than 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 we do for sure. I don't know if it's about media. I think it's about outrage. I think it's just about people yeah. um, being able to project their outrage onto others through social media that has just created its own irrationality. It is interesting to watch videos of people who are the bakers, which is what people who are deeply into Q will talk about while they're formulating their new ideas, their new conspiratorial threads. And they, they make videos of themselves surfing the internet, and they'll have all these tabs open on their page. And the first couple tabs will usually be like a New York Times article. It will be like kind of a mainstream press article. And then as they cycle through their tabs, it gradually gets crazier and crazier and crazier. And they're happy for it to get crazy. The fact that it's completely unmoored from reality, they'll often admit to. They're like, I'm really going down the rabbit hole right now, but there's pleasure in that. There's pleasure in that irrationality. But that's like finding the shelf at St. Mark's Books where like the Bukowski poetry is. Totally, you know? or the anarchist cookbook. A... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it gets to like the a real truth in society, which is just that everyone is ex- experiencing a deep sense of alienation from a system that constantly reinforces the, that reality that, you know, there is a truth, unfortunately, to a lot of the critiques, even in these people going down the rabbit hole, right? There is a truth that like Jeffrey Epstein was a monster and other very rich, powerful people did, you know, in fact, cavort with him. But then as a human being who's just lived through like 9-11 and the Iraq war and then the financial meltdown of 2008 around real estate and they constantly see a system which like supports the top 0.1% and the further stratification of rich versus poor, you know, all of that is something, whether we're aware of it or not, is something that we carry psychically. We see the effects of it everywhere around us. And so our brain wants to make sense of it all and the internet and memes and then conspiracy theories sort of layer all into enabling this, this rabbit hole (laughs) uh, performance. And I don't know where we go from here. I don't know, but it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to get crazier. Yeah, it's going to get weirder. I know. And I guess, you know, that the answer would be first, I mean, everyone should watch this movie. How can regular people watch this movie now? <laughs> uh, you can rent it uh, on pretty much any platform that you nor- normally rent films from. Like, 
this is the other yeah problem that we're always up against now in the streaming wars is that everyone everyone has like their their subscriptions to streaming services and the belief is that oh well eventually a film will get onto Netflix or whatever. But like Feels yeah. Good Man is not going to ever come to Netflix. It's not ever going <laughs> to get on Hulu. So you're going to have to rent it. <laughs> but you know, we put out the film ourselves. So just understand that yeah. when you're renting it, you're you're helping hopefully artists that you like. Yeah, you're helping real filmmakers make make movies. And and the beauty of that is uh you know cuz I I think you know cuz I was going to ask and you you were just almost alluding to the question that I'm not asking. You know it's like, well, what do we do from here? Where do we go? What's going to happen? Where is the story? And it's like that's not the point. It seems like what I got from Feels Good Man is the point is pull down your pants to your ankles and just pee. It feels good, man. <laughs> In other words, to reground, you know, to get healthy, get good relationships, have a healthy relationship to people in your life, the way you get money, the ways that you live, which will give you the grounding to be able to have some resilience, to be able to process and digest some of the crap that comes through and instead manifest whatever you're going to manifest. Yes, 100%. <laughs> I'm glad that's, that was definitely the takeaway. Yeah. Well, and also just if you have a problem in your life, deal with it. <laughs> like, and, and therefore that will give you um, answers to a lot of your problems just in that like very simple act of putting yourself out there and dealing with it. You know, Matt wasn't, he's not going to ever be an activist, but he is going to try to like deal with Pepe and the, in the ways that he can, whether that's through his artistic community or through collaborating with copyright lawyers or what have you. But it's the, uh, you know, and I've, I've spoken with a philosopher friend of mine about this. It's so much to do with the way we move through life. It's the, com- all you really have charge of is the comportment, you know, the, the, the way, the way you carry yourself as you, as you move through this existence. And that will determine so much more than whatever predetermined ideas you have. You know, you can practice, oh, if someone does this, I'm going to respond like that. If someone does this, I'm going to respond like that. It's like, no, just be, you know, if it, and that's, that's the, the great lesson that Matt really brings through the way he just exudes, uh, you know, he's way more leaf than he is, you know, he's more river reed than he is mighty oak. <laughs> Matt would love that. Yeah, uh, but- Matt, Matt, Matt would love that. I mean, the only the only thank when we were like compiling the list of thank yous for the film, the only thing Matt wanted to thank was the Yuba River Spirit, which is um, a river in Northern California that Matt loves to go swimming in. So it was important for us to have one of the final <laughs> shots in the film, Matt swimming in the Yuba. That was something that was an editorial choice on his part. <laughs> we were we were happy to um, to to facilitate that. Uh, that's great because it's funny because that reminded me of the end of uh, of Slacker, Rick Linkletter's oh, yeah. movie, and it had no plot. But at the end, they just go to the the Lake Travis and just jump in, you know, and that's they just swimming around in there. <laughs> but it's all you can finally say, right? It's just just good swimming a river, you know. <laughs> well, the hope the hope moving forward from here is that you know at least we can attend to people's legitimate material needs to at least create uh, to temper the legitimate alienation that people are feeling in, in the world and create yeah. a baseline that can calm people's spirits. So that hopefully like that in tandem with reconnecting with the Yuba river spirit will hopefully <laughs> lead to <laughs> positive change. And, and, and exactly. And happiness for all. Well, thank you guys. You're, you're, so certainly on Team Human, but thank you for being explicitly on Team Human. 
uh, <laughs> with us. Oh, what an honor. Oh, Thank you so this much. Is, this has been great. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guests today were the makers of Feels Good Man, Arthur Jones and Giorgio Angelini. You can find out more about them and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a paying subscriber of the show. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.